Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, welcome back. This is going to be for 2 Kings chapter 4. This chapter is going to cover some miracles that Elisha performs. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in, thy, in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. So Then he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when they art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and thou shalt pour out into all of those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her. And she poured out, and it came to pass when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed or stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children on the rest. The widow was directed to borrow empty vessels from all her neighbors, then to shut the door behind her and her sons, and to pour from what she had into those empty vessels, when the multiplying blessing of God would fill them. It would be difficult to imagine any symbol more full of meaning and instruction alike in its general direction and in its details. It showed that God was a present help. His special blessing given when needed directly and miraculously would increase our scanty provision. Nor can we be mistaken in supposing that the direction to shut the door behind her and her sons was intended to enjoin not only reverent acknowledgment, but silent worship of God. And truly, so ought we also, when seeking help from him, ever to feel ourselves alone with him, combining, like her of old, absolute trust in the promise of his word with active obedience to his direction, doing what lies in us while praying and praying while doing it. Lastly, it seems quite in accordance with what had passed, that when all the borrowed vessels were full and the oil had stayed, the widow should, before disposing of anything, have gone to the prophet for his direction, and, we may add, equally so, that Elisha should have told her first to pay her creditor and then to employ the rest towards the sustenance of herself and her sons. That was by Edersheim. Verse 8, And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, there was, where was a, wom- a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was, that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. The Aliyah chamber is an upper room of an eastern house, being, being sometimes built on the roof and sometimes making a second story to the porch to which it has access by stairs. It is hence called in Second Samuel the chamber over the gate. In the text it is called a chamber in the wall, probably because its window opening to the street made, made a break in the dead wall and was thus about the only evidence of an outside spectator of the existence of rooms in the house. It is usually well furnished and kept as a room for the entertainment of honored guests. That was by Freeman. Verse 11, And it fell on a day that that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to 
Gehazi, his servant, called this Shunammite woman, Shunammite, and when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said, and she said, and he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care, and is to be done. What is to be done for thee? Wouldst thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. And he said, What then is to be done for, for her? And Gehazi answered, Verily she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my lord, thou, thou man of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. These verses recount three great miracles Elisha performed through the power of the priesthood. First, he raised from the dead the son of the Shunammite woman who had shown so much kindness to him. Second, he blessed food that was bitter and inedible and made it whole or good. And third, he multiplied a small number of loaves of barley bread and ears of corn to feed many people. Many features of Elisha's ministry parallel those of the Savior's. He truly was a type of the Messiah, as Elijah has been been before. And that was from the Institute Manual. Verse 18, And when the child was grown, it fell in a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him he brought and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new noon, it is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled her an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and see Say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away, and the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins. And take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child, and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands, and he stretched forth himself. I'm sorry, and he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon him, and, he, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet, and bowed herself to the ground, and took up her son, and went out. 
It was as Elisha had said, that, and the Shunammite became the joyous mother of a son. Since then, years had passed, during which he, we, have, we have no record of Elisha's continued visits to the great house. Now, sad, now gladdened by the voice of a child, perhaps he no longer, or at least not so often, passed by. More probably, Scripture, after, his want, after its want, is silent on that which is purely personal in the history. But the child had passed through five of the stages which Jewish affection, watching with special fondness, the opening life had successively marked by no less than nine designations. They are so interesting that we shall here put them down. The yelled or born babe had <clears throat> successively become a yonic or suckling, and an olel, who no longer satisfied with only this nourishment, asks for bread, then a gamel, or weaned one, and next a toff, one who clings to his mother, and he passed through this stage also, and was just entering on the stage designated by Elem, becoming firm and strong. It was the time of harvest, and the child was going out to his father, <clears throat> to the reapers, when the hot eastern sun struck his head. At his cry of pain, the father bade one of the servants carry the child back to his mother, and all that long morning she pressed his aching head to her bosom, till when the midday sun shot down its arrow, its arrows, he, he lay still and dead in her arms. Not a cry of lament escaped that brave mother to tell them of the house of the terrible desolation that had swept over it. Her resolve was taken with the rapidity and unfailing certitude that comes of faith. To Elisha, or rather to Elisha's God, he had given, he could restore the child. In any case, she would go with her complaint, not to man, but to the God of Almighty help, and not rest satisfied with anything unless it came directly from him. It was quite in accordance with all this, and very significant, that in, that in silence she carried her dead child to the prophet's chamber, and, lay, and there laid him on the bed. Here let him rest, as it were, in keeping of the prophet's God, whose promise had first brought son, till, if ever, the, the prophet's God would again waken him. And so, like the prophet's widow, when she received the divine help, she shut the door. For what had man to do with it? Her appeal lay directly to God. But she must have been a strong, as strong. But she must have been a strong as well as a good woman, strong also in faith, when she could so well keep her feelings under control that her husband had not even suspicion of aught amiss. When her, when she preferred the unusual request that one of the servants and one of the beasts of burden should be sent back from the field, that she might at once resort to the man of God, for it was neither new moon nor Sabbath. When, as we are led to infer, the prophet was wont to give religious instruction, and people gathered around him, and perhaps came to Carmel from a considerable distance, with a deepening, with a, with a deprecating peace, as it were, pray let it be so, she waved aside the in inquiry of the busy man, and once her home be behind her, she fully gave herself to what was before her. It was no longer a weak woman, or on whom the the greatest earthly sorrow had descended, but one strong, resolute, bent on a great purpose, and wholly self-forgetful. As she had herself no doubt for speed, seen to the saddling of the ass, so she now bade the servant drive on, go, drive, delay me not in my riding, hinder me not, keep me not back, unless I bid thee. The, the sun must have been declining towards the west, when after that ride of fifteen or twenty miles she was nearing Carmel from from a bluff of the mountains, the prophet had been watching the rider speeding in such haste across the plain and recognized the, Shul Shun the Shunammite. Although not divinely informed and therefore not divinely assured of a happy issue, uh, he must have known that only some great 
trouble to herself, her husband or her child would have brought her on that afternoon and in such manner. And so he sent Gehazi to meet her with an inquiry meant to reassure her, at least so far as his own interest and sympathy were concerned. But all the more that she so understood it, would he be neither detained by Gehazi, nor could she be opened could she have opened her heart to him? Indeed, to have attempted telling her sorrow or her need to any man would have been unfit to her in every sense for telling it to the prophet. At sight of Elisha, the strong woman for the first time gave way. She had reached the goal, and now in an agony of passion she threw herself at his feet and, and laid hold on them, as if in her despair she could not let him go without being without helping her. It was, as in Jacob's wrestling with the angel, the, mo- the mode of agonizing prayer suited to Old Testament times, when God and for and when God and His help, and indeed most spiritual realities, were presented in a in a concrete manner, from a spurious zeal for His mother's honor, from false notions of what became or did not become, the consequences of His utter want of spiritual insight and sympathy, Gehazi would have thrust her away. So would the multitude of silenced blind Bartimaeus, and even the disciples sent away the importunate Syrophoenician woman, and so do we in our mistaken notions of what is becoming or unbecoming to often hinder souls from personal contact with our Lord. But Elisha would not suffer Gehazi, for he knew that her soul was in anguish. Although as God had not made him to know its cause, he was ignorant of what its issue would be. It is this, we feel persuaded, which explains much in the conduct of Elisha, such as his first mission to Gehazi, which otherwise would seem strange, if not unintelligible. But surely never was Elisha more humbled than on the eve of the greatest miracle God wrought by his hands. Never did the poverty of his humanity, as merely as an instrument in the hand of God, appear in more clear light than by the side of the help which Jehovah was about to send. And Elisha himself gave vent to these feelings it, uh, feelings when he spoke with such sorrow of Jehovah having hidden it from him and not revealed it. It seems well nigh the extreme of critical misunderstanding when these words of Elisha are regarded as meaning that if Elijah had known it, he would have, he would have hasted to Shunem. The opposite conduct of our Lord in the case of Lazarus. But this, was, this we may say that never was legend so construed so constructed to every thoughtful render or to every thoughtful reader such purely human traits of felt weakness and of ignorance not only of the future but of the present and the past must carry instructive conviction of the truth of this narrative full of the miraculous though it be the first words which the Shunammite spoke to Elisha revealed the state of the case they were not an entirely an entreaty of help they were more since they had laid hold on the faithfulness of God to his word and promise. The commission of the prophet to Gehazi to hasten on and lay Elisha's staff upon the face of the dead child seems at first difficult to understand. It is quite true that this was not an ordinary staff, but as it were, the symbol of prophetic authority and rule with all that, it, that, it, that this implied, like the staff of Moses. But it is impossible to to believe that Elisha expected either that the staff would restore life to the dead or that Gehazi would be able to perform such a miracle, or on the other hand, that Elisha acted under misapprehension as Nathan had spoken to David when still uninstructed as to the will of God.
or else that the prophet could have imagined that the child was not really dead. Nor can we accept the suggestion sometimes made that Elisha had full well known Gehazi would not succeed, but had still sent him in order to show either to Gehazi or to the Shunammite or to Israel generally that miracles were not magic and that neither a Gehazi nor a prophet's staff would produce them. It is difficult to use modern language in rejecting suggestions which imply that Elisha had purposely employed what he knew to be useless measures in order to teach some abstract lesson, or that he could have done so at a moment of such agony and suspense. Kindred views in regard to God's dealings with us when under severe affliction are, indeed, too often entertained by Christians. They should give place to more enlightened conceptions of the character of God and to a more simple and childlike faith in him, who, who, who afflicteth not willingly, but, but for our profit. We feel convinced that the explanation of Gehazi's commission must be sought within the narrative itself. When Elisha dispatched his servant with his staff, it was with the intention that he should take his master's place. What afterwards determined him to go personally was the expressed resolve of the woman. As Jehovah liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. Then he arose and went after her. All this seems in accordance with what has been previously stated. If, as Elisha expressed it with sorrow, Jehovah had not communicated to his servant what had happened in the house of the Shunammite, then the prophet was not only ignorant of the final issue, but left without any divine commission in the matter. In these circumstances, he would wait for such direction as might be indicated to him in the course of events, and he received it clearly and unmistakably through the expressed resolution of the Shunammite. Accordingly, he immediately followed her. The previous mission of Gehazi may have been in, be tentative and preparatory, and the laying of the prophet's staff on the face of the child perhaps symbolic of the attest, at, at the arrestment of the progress of decay. <clears throat> Nor can there be difficulty in understanding the prophet's direction to Gehazi not to salute anyone by the way, nor to return any, any salutation. It was intended not only to indicate the necessity of speed on what brooked no delay and of avoiding, avoiding only any worldly distraction when on such an errand, but also to prevent any such publicity as to the matter in hand as would have been the natural sequence of conversation, especially on the part of one like Gehazi. The narrative passes in silence over the long ride across es, Esdrelon to Shunem, Evening must have gathered on the deep blue summer sky when the two at length neared the desolate home. Ere they came to it, Gehazi had met them and with, with the report, the lad is not awaked. And this also is significant of Gehazi's thoughts about the matter. He had literally obeyed his master's behest and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor attending on the part of the dead child. But by this time, we dare not doubt it, Elisha knew what he had to do. Even if the Lord had been silent to him, he had already received sufficient direction. What follows in the narrative is chiefly intended to set more clearly before us the reality of what now took place. Arrived in his chamber, the prophet shut the door upon himself and the dead child that lay on his bed. Arrived in, the, in his chamber, the prophet shut the door upon himself and the dead child that lay on his bed. I think I just said that, didn't I? Sorry. We have learned to understand the meaning of this act, which symbolically set forth being alone with God. As regards his prayer to Jehovah and the close personal contact with the dead child, Elisha followed, as from every point of view, we would have expected the example of his master, Elijah, when he recalled to life the widow's son at Sarepta. Differences in detail there are between the two narratives, such as will readily be noticed, but these are best accounted for by the difference both in the circumstances and character and mission of the two prophets. In any case, they are not of importance and alike the symbolism and the lessons of this history 
must be apparent to all. First, as regards the Shunammite, we see in her a true and faithful Israelitish woman, who in a lifetime of general apostasy owned Jehovah alike in her life and her home. Receiving a prophet because of him who had sent him, because he was a holy man of God, and with, hum with humility and entire self-forgetfulness, she received a prophet's reward and the gift most precious to, to a Jewish woman, which she had not dared to hope for, even when announced to her. Then, when severely tried, she had held fast to her trust in the promise, strong even when, when weakest, more often self-forgetful and following deepest spiritual impulse. And in the end, her, but, and in the end, her faith appears victorious, crowned by divine mercy, and shining out the more brightly from its contrast to the, to the felt weakness of the prophet. As we think of this, it seems as if a fuller light was shed on the history of the trials of, of an Abraham, an Isaac, or a Jacob, on the inner life of those heroes of faith to whom the epistle of the Hebrews points us for example and learning. And on such scripture sayings on these, Jehovah killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Know that Jehovah hath set apart him that is godly for himself. Jehovah will hear when I call unto him. Or this, all the paths of Jehovah are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. The last glimpse we have of the Shunammite in this narrative is when called by Elisha to bring back her living son. She bends in low, lowly reverence and then silently retires. When next we meet her, it is in circumstances of trial above almost as great as that through which she had formerly passed. Once more she proves true, trustful, and brave, and once more in, is her faith crowned by mercy and deliverance. Secondly, we, f we think of the symbolical and typical teaching of this history. The rabbis discuss the question whether the dead child of the Shunammite could have Levitically defiled those who touched him from the time of origin. A somewhat fanciful allegorical view of this history has been from, time, from the time, I'm sorry, uh, the history has been presented. The dead had represented the human race dead in sin. The staff of Gehazi, the law of Moses, which could not set free from sin and death, while Elisha was the type of the Son of God, who by his incarnation had entered, had entered into fellowship with, the, with our flesh and imparted a new life to our race. This Pharisaic scruple deserves record for the significant answer it elicits. The dead defileth, but the living does, does not defile. To us, all this includes a, a meaning of, of report, or a meaning deeper than they could attach to it. <clears throat> the story speaks to us of him through whom death is swallowed up in victory. As we think of him, who, as God incarnate and as the scent of the Father, is so to us the representatives the representative and the prophet of God in a unique sense, we recall that it was not, as by Elijah or Elisha, through prayer and of God in a, in a unique sense, we recall that it was not, as by Elijah or Elisha, through prayer and personal conduct, but by the word of, the pro of his prophet that he raised, he raised the dead. And beyond this, we remember that the, the hour <clears throat> now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear him shall live, and that whosoever liveth and believeth in Christ shall never die. That was by Edersheim. Verse 38, And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a, a dearth or famine in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said unto his servant, Set on the great pot, and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. 
And one went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered thereof wild gourds his lapful, and came and shred them into the pot of pottage, and they knew them not. And so he poured out for the men to eat, and it came to pass, as they were eating of the pottage, that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat thereof. And he, but he said, Bring then bring meal. And he cast it into the pot, and he said, Pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. And there came a man from Baal Shalishah, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and full of ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, and he said Give unto the people that they may eat. And his, servant said, his servitor said, what, shall I set this before a hundred men? He said again, Give the people that they, that they may eat, for there is, there shall, to give to eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and shall leave, shall leave thereof. And so, so he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof, according to the word of the Lord. So these are the, some of the miracles that Elisha did. And this last one here of uh, feeding the hungry here, the, those that didn't have food. Very similar to Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Anyway, that's the end of the chapter, and we'll see you next time. Bye.